I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Songbook, the White Rabbit podcast about brilliant books about music, backbreaking biographies, grubby histories, pocket-sized heartbreakers, and more. I'm Jude Rogers, arts and culture journalist, broadcaster and author of White Rabbit title, The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives, and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest. We find him at 11.30am, neat, clean, unshaved and sober, um, looking not at all like a detective in a cheap thriller, wishing he could turn to the last page and stop all his confusion spinning in his ears. Before he was one of Britain's most beloved best-selling crime writers, our guest was a swineherd, a taxman and an alcohol researcher a practice he still continues to this day in the Oxford Bar in his long-adopted hometown of Edinburgh. He's named books after music by the Rolling Stones, The Cure, Radiohead, and the band whose story lays at the heart of today's songbook, Joy Division. A brooding, curmudgeonly, secretly warm welcome to Ian Rankin. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. You've immediately fallen into a trap. Oh, what's a trap? Uh, Exit Music, my book, was not named after the Radiohead song. It was named oh. after an album by the Scottish artist Stephen Lindsay. Oh, well, there we are. I'm going to have to sack this off and start again. I apologise. <laughs> no, any... we want to keep your mistakes injured. Yeah. <laughs> were, there any, were there any links between Radiohead and him? Was that completely too No, he, 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 put, he put an album out called Exit Music, um, and I don't think it had any connection to Exit Music. What was it, Exit Music Exit for a Film? Exit Music for a Film, it? yeah. yeah. Ah. I don't think it had any connection at all. I did meet him once, and I think I remember asking him that, and it was just complete coincidence. But I just thought it was meant to be the final book with my guy, Rebus, in it. Yeah. So I decided Exit Music was the perfect title. Fun. Right, I'm writing down at Exit Music, Stephen Lindsay. Right, there we go. Stephen Lindsay. I've got it here. Right. Fantastic. Well, there we are. As soon as we finish this, I'll be off to to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you today, Ian? Um, tell us what you've been up to today. Uh, I am proofreading my next Rebus novel, which will be released in October um, and has yet another title taken from a song lyric. Um, uh, so, yeah, proofreading today. And it's baking hot in Edinburgh strangely and because I'm doing a podcast, I've had to close all the windows. So <laughs> it's a bit like a sauna in here unusually. How's the proofreading going? It's gone okay. I'm about two thirds of the way through, and I've not found much. Um, occasional little glitch, but nothing that really substantial needs changing. And the book is called "The Heart Full of Headstones," which is yet another lyric by my old dear departed friend Jackie Levin. Fantastic. Yes, you're a big fan of his work. Um, we talked about that before. Um, has your I know your wife does um, a read through as well. Is this is this post your wife's read through of the book? Yeah, so my wife looks at the second or third draft and then I make the changes that she, she suggests because that is the secret of a happy marriage. Then it goes to my um, agent and publisher and they sometimes try and uh, brutalise the text by suggesting changes that she things that she hasn't noticed are wrong with the book. Um, <laughs> and we come to a happy kind of conclusion, which is usually me waiting down to the wire before I say, well, I could make those changes, but then we'll miss the publication date. <laughs> so they eventually they eventually kowtow and the book goes out much as me and my wife want it. How long has this been going on now, Ian? 
How many this, years? This war, this war of attrition. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, well, I mean, I met my wife at university. So, I mean, I knew her before I was a published writer. So she's been um, editing, in inverted commas, my books ever since. Um, oh. And if it doesn't get past her, you know, if she doesn't like it, it doesn't go anywhere else. Oh, fantastic. Well, my husband did a copy edit of my book. So um, if I ever write another mm-hmm. one, there we go. I'm going to have to continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we're also speaking in a summer in which you've been touring the UK, talking about your most recent book, or should I say collaboration, really, the Dark Remains, um, which saw you complete, in inverted commas, an unfinished manuscript or a notes by um, legendary Scottish crime writer William McIlvanny. I was wondering how music has accompanied you this summer, you know, on that tour with the proofreading. Um, yeah, well, sadly for me, Willie um, in his books doesn't mention music at all, as far as I can remember. So there was no chance for me to shoehorn musical references in, although it would have been delightful because that book is set in 1972. And of course, this year we're celebrating a lot of 50th anniversary albums, albums yeah. that came out in 1972. So I could have gotten a, I could have shoehorned in a mention of Ziggy Stardust, for example. <laughs> But uh, but McIlvanny's detective would not have been a fan of Bowie, I don't think. So that didn't happen. It would have happened if I'd been writing about Rebus, but it couldn't happen. <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, this can be fifty. All these anniversaries, you know, it's it sort of take. I think it's lovely. I mean, it's it's nostalgia, of course. But to go back to when I was twelve, which I was in nineteen seventy two, and remember music really starting to have an effect on me for the first time. You know, getting into. Alice Cooper and Hawkwind and Bowie and Mott the Hoople, um, T-Rex were around, of course, all of that. It was just seemed like a, you know, 1972 for me was quite a great time. I was growing up in a coal mining village in Fife and living in a council house, et cetera, et cetera, not much money. Um, and yet here were these very colourful characters singing songs that took me out of that quite grey environment. And showed me that the world was infinite yeah and obviously kind of going on later in the 70s you know what a time to be a a teenager and you know we'll be talking about you know you start in university and the music of um the music that features in today's book um so in a moment we'll introduce today's book but first I have my three uh rapid fire questions that I give all songbook guests if you're ready for those yeah um so who was the first musical artist you loved and be honest. Mark Bolan. Oh, Mark Bolin. that's, that's um, too cool. <laughs> posters on the walls, buying the singles, um, eventually saving up enough money to start buying the albums, um, watching them on Top of the Pops, of course, taping Top of the Pops with my tape recorder, which I got for Christmas in 1972. Um, all of that. Yeah, he was, he just seemed to, you know, he came down, he seemed like he came down from another planet and he led to everything else. He led on to Bowie, which led on to, 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 prog eventually you know i mean in some weird ways boy got me into prog so he was the start of that journey fantastic who was the first writer on music you loved um john savage probably um i was a punk i was 17 in 1977 he was writing for sounds which was my uh my music bible of choice i also sometimes picked up nme but never melody maker um and he was writing about the punk explosion and it just seemed like it you know haven't got into prog here was a complete breath of fresh air here was music that wasn't coming from private schools and people with mellotrons but actually coming from the streets and people who did the same background as me so i was very excited by that and when his book england's dreaming came out it got me back into punk all over again what was the first music book you loved 
The first music book I remember reading was when I was at high school, probably junior high, and I used to haunt the, the school library. And there was a book there called A Wop Bop A Loo Bop A Lop Bam Boom oh, by yeah. Nick Cohn, which had been published in 69. I read it early 70s. Um, everything from Haley to Hendrix. And uh, yeah, about that time, I was getting a monthly, monthly magazine, weekly magazine called The Story of Pop. And I even bought the binders to put it in. I was really into reading about music. But Nick Cohn's book was the, had that lovely kind of rock and roll cover, uh, yeah. the paperback. And I just, you know, I thought, okay, people are writing books about music. Therefore, music is a serious endeavour, not <laughs> something just to be dismissed. Fantastic choices. Now, on to today's book. Um, now, I first read this not long after it came out in the mid-90s. So I was in my late teens, during which time I had a very intense relationship with Joy Division, as so many of us did. I have two copies. Um, one is wrecked from back in the day, but the other came out in 2007 after the release of Anton Corbin's film about Joy Division, uh, Control, which was based on this book. So the book is written by Ian Curtis's widow after the collapse of Factory Records. Um, and there is a quote from you, Ian, on the back of my 2007 copy. Oh. You wrote... An extraordinary book, a steely-eyed look at the pitfalls of fame and a fascinating insight into one man's heart and soul, written by the only person qualified for the job. Uh, the book is Touching from a Distance, Ian Curtis and Joy Division by Deborah Curtis. Now, Ian, when I approached you about this podcast, this is the book you mentioned straight away. Can you um, tell us about um, when you were a university student to start with, when you fell in love with Joy Division and why you responded to them? I should say that I've got an older copy, an older version of the book, and I, so I had no idea that my quote was used in it. I must have mentioned it. Oh, really? Or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's nice. I must go and get that that edition. Um, well, I'm, yeah, I mean, Joy Division, oh, late 70s. Um, I'd, I'd gone to Edinburgh University, October 1978, still into punk and what was becoming post-punk. Um, uh, you know, I was a dark, troubled, tortured soul, writing poetry and smoking gitan. Uh, and, you know, want to be recognised as an angry young man or an outsider or an existentialist. Um, and the music I was listening to was stuff like The Cure and Joy Division and Bauhaus. Um, it was kind of dark. It was brooding. It was the kind of things I wanted to be uh, in my persona. Um, and, yeah, Joy Division had this extraordinary mystique about them. The, the, the covers, the, the records didn't give anything away. There were very few photographs of the band. They didn't seem to go in for band photographs on their, on their recordings. Um, they didn't do much in the way of TV appearances, it seemed to me, or if they did, I didn't see them. So there was a mystique, and the lyrics as well seemed quite, mm. you know, kind of dark and brooding and, and different, uh, uh, all of that. And, and I, you know, so I didn't know much about the band, uh, was the thing. And I thought that was really intriguing, that was really interesting. Um, so when the book was published, I jumped on it, I leapt on it, and I bought my copy from Virgin. It was Virgin Records in Aberdeen, and I bought it. It's got a nine ninety nine sticker on the front, which is how I know that. Um, so I bought it soon after the, after it came out um, originally. And it was thrilling to, in a way, it was thrilling. I mean, you sometimes you say print the myth, but here was the opposite of that. Here was a band that I had idolised and who seemed like idols. They seemed sort of otherworldly suddenly being turned back into young men again, um, mm. human beings with foibles and frailties by one woman who knew the band really, really well. At the same time, also excitingly, at the back were the lyrics, which, of course, were never published on the Joy Division albums, and here were all the lyrics. I could pour over the lyrics for the first time and realise all the things that I had got wrong when I was listening. I'm terrible with Mondegreens. I hear things yes. and get them wrong all the time. 
Um, one of your uh, books, and, isn't it? There's one of your books that the title is. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a Jackie Leaven song I misheard, which is his song lyric was "Standing in Another Man's Rain," but I misheard it as as, as "Grave," "Standing in a Man's Grave." So that's what the book became known <laughs> became called. Um, so, so um, yeah, you know, it was like I'd, I I just was fascinated by it, and um, I mean, the book I've got here, I've got, there's all kinds of bits of scraps of paper in it. There's a uh, cuttings from Q Magazine, Eyewitness: The Making of Unknown Pleasures. Oh, fantastic! Um, so it's an interview with all the people involved in the making of that. And I tore it out of the magazine and kept it. Also, is a little lined piece of paper which on it has my plans to turn unknown pleasures into a novel. Oh, I was going to ask you about this. This is on my questions. I've read this in yeah. an old interview of yours. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, obviously, when I was reading through the lyrics, I thought almost, they almost seemed to be like a film to me. There were kind of scenes in a movie and um, a kind of, you know, dark, uh, shadowy movie. And I started to think, what could the plot possibly be? So what I've got down here is it would be a metaphysical hitman um, involved with a psychotic femme fatale. Uh, and involve a car chase through night streets. And I sort of started grabbing, pulling out lyrics. All of these were sort of conjuring up scenes in my head as to mm. things that I might actually end up putting in this book, which, of course, today I've never got round to writing. But it's a fun idea. When did you do those notes? It must have been really early on because my handwriting is still readable. So <laughs> that would have been very soon after I got the book, I think. It's in like an old notepad, lined sheets and torn off at the top from the kind of, you know, the... Um, is that something so, yeah. that you would do? Do you think? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm probably past that now. I don't know. <laughs> I can imagine someone doing it, and it would be a fantastic kind of um, metaphysical thriller, existential thriller. But possibly, I'm not the person to do it. Oh well, I I definitely read that. I know there's been audience out there for for it here, definitely. Um, I was reading the um introduction to my edition, um, which is by John Savage, funnily enough, who you mentioned earlier. Um, and there's a great um bit about how um Joy Division's music conjured up atmosphere. You know, no pun intended. He writes about how Joy Division used pop music as the means to dive into the collective unconscious. Only this was not Dickensian London, but to Quincy's Manchester, an environment systematically degraded by industrial revolution, confined by lowering moors with oblivion as the only escape. You know, it's beautiful writing. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, as you said, Ian Curtis's lyric writing is, you know, rich with atmosphere and shadows. And, you know, it's you're in a place instantly with them. Have you taken any lessons from lyric writers as an author? I think it would have been truer in my early days when I was writing tortured lyrics, <laughs> you know, poems uh, of unrequited love to students I couldn't talk to or, um, or date at university, written in very chilly shared rooms of, of kind of, you know, damp B&Bs. But, you know, when I was first a student, I was staying in a series of fairly dodgy um uh, houses and apartments so uh, you know the stuff I was writing then the short the, the the poems the song lyrics for bands who didn't exist when eventually I wasn't a band of dancing pigs so the lyrics came in quite handy for for that um influenced by Ian Curtis to a, a certain extent obviously the short stories I then began to write were sort of stories of alienation industrial decay dark dangerous cities that were crumbling um yeah um you know fraught things just around each corner that you were trying to avoid. So all of that, I think I was taken from 
um, people like Ian Curtis and the lyrics of people like Ian Curtis, I'm sure. When I moved into crime fiction, things changed a bit, although the Edinburgh in, in the first couple of Rebus novels is quite a dark, um, mm. deadly place full of kind of conspiracies and, and um, shadowy figures uh, and indeed occasionally hitmen. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, there's definitely something in that. My great sadness, though, Jude, is that I never saw them live. And I read this. You were yeah. you missed them because you had an essay to write. Well, yeah, a mate of mine knocked on my door one night of one of these one of these B and Bs I was staying at and said, <laughs> "Oh, I'm going to see I'm going to see the Buzzcocks. Do you want to see the Buzzcocks? They're just on a few streets away. And I've got a spare ticket." And I said, "Yeah, I'm not a huge Buzzcocks fan. Um, maybe give it a miss. They're a bit kind of joyful for me." And he said, oh, but Joy Division, this band Joy Division are the support. And I went, I've never heard of them, mate. I've never heard of them. Uh, and he said, and he, off he went, because as you say, I was going to sit and write this essay for my English literature course that was, you know, to, to be handed in the next day. And then so the next day, I think the very next day, I thought, Joy Division. And I went into the, there was a record shop literally across from where the, the flat was I was living at. And I went in and there was Unknown Pleasures. So I bought it and I've, I've got it sitting in front of me here. The copy oh, that yeah. I bought, and I just got it straight away, and I thought this band are absolutely superb. Well, they were coming back to Edinburgh, um, May nineteen eighty. This this gig was October seventy nine, the Buscocks gig. I think it was October seventy nine. They were coming back in May nineteen eighty to play a small place called the Astoria, where they would be headlining. So I rushed off and bought my ticket, two pounds fifty. I've got it in front of me again, uh, two pounds fifty. No under eighteens, nine p.m. till one a.m. Oh, Joy um, Division support late bar and disco. Joy Division support late bar and disco. Sorry for the audio listeners. I'm going to so, see this. Oh, wow. Proper. Little red, piece of red card, basically. Yeah. And because wow. the, the gig was cancelled because Ian Curtis took ill. In fact, I looked at the list of gigs which are in the back of the book, Touching from a Distance. And there's a kind of, you know, it stops just before this May gig was due to take place um, mm. in Edinburgh. Um, I did later on, years later, get it signed by Peter Hook. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Who said. <laughs> Peter Hook was not here, uh, <laughs> and my ticket number is three five six. I don't know exactly how many the Astoria would have held; not many more than five hundred. So I never did see them live, but I held on to the ticket because it was a kind of memento of of the one time I, I did get. A, I would have gone and seen them as yeah. a fan, but because Ian wasn't well, I never got the chance. Yeah, there are many stories of that. I know a friend who's meant to see um, Nirvana and didn't go because you know thought off. Oh, I don't know, and uh, you know, regretted it ever since. Um, There's a so- wonderful, the wonderful story about Nirvana because they, when they played Edinburgh before they were big, they were going to go. They were invited by somebody they knew to this pub afterwards, and so a few of the fans went along to this pub, and they never showed, never showed, never showed, and so a lot of people went home. But a mate of mine stuck around, and eventually they did turn up and played a short uh, set, I think, a, a short oh, wow. um, acoustic set, um, and 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 he said that he. he, he uh, who did he put? I can't remember. I think he burped into Kurt Cobain, it was, in the loos and toilets. And Kurt <laughs> said, have you, have you got any flu remedies or cold remedies on you? I'm stuffed with a cold. Uh, so he said, I nearly got the chance to give drugs. Um, <laughs> but, but, but to Kurt Cobain, but never quite. Didn't quite. <laughs> so let's get back to the book. Um, now, Deborah Curtis's perspective on her husband, it's so stark and unflinching um, and really interesting on him in his early life. Um, she talks about how any interest of his became a vocation 
very early on. You know, he loved uh, the sport of speedway in his early teens mm. and he drew parallels between himself and the world champion at the time, Ivan Majors. She talks about how he always had a fascination for fame. Um, how do you feel about how she draws out his personality? I mean, I think she's, I think she's, uh, as you've suggested, unflinchingly honest. And I mean, it wasn't a glamorous rock star life. Um, maybe that was ahead of them or ahead of him. Um, but it's really, it's, you know, it's small terraced housing and it's trying to look after a baby and it's him working, what was it, like a doll office or something he worked in, um, working as a civil servant and and suffering seizures and um, the seizures getting worse and the lifestyle doing nothing to help with that. And then, you know, gigs trundling down to London in cold vans and cars that aren't quite working and... Um, it's very unglamorous, and she talks about the, the bunch, you know, the, the 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 band all getting together in the bar, and it's a lovely thing where she goes, but you know, they had a song called "I Walked in Line, I Walked in Line," um, but they were getting served with lager, and they said, "I wanted lime, I wanted lime," and they started singing along the lyrics of their own song, but with this kind of new lyric insert. Yeah. They just they're just such they seem like such ordinary people, and then you go back to the the kind of the the iconic photographs uh, taken by Kevin Cummings where it's all dark and shadow and they look very alienated and they look kind of, you know, they look like creatures from an East European art house movie. Mm. And then there's this other bunch of people who are just blokes trying to get on with their lives and Ian Curtis trying to get on with married life and, and married life beginning to 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 not work, um, possibly for either participant in that marriage. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it just, it you know, it, it, it's, it's the antithesis of most of the rock biographies I'd read up until that point, because it just made it turned him back into an ordinary guy again, and I just thought that's lovely. It's lovely we're getting this perspective that he isn't the the, the person that so many people idolised, who was on posters and mugs and you know the kind of the, the first album that image was everywhere, um, and the the Anton Corbin video for Love Will Tear Us Apart. You got these very iconic images but here was this, this fairly ordinary bloke and i just thought that's that i think that's it's wonderful in a way that you have you've you've you know, you've kind of you've stripped away the the myth and you've given us the real people in this story mm. uh, and unlike a lot of you know i'd read hammer of the gods the led zeppelin biography and stuff like that or books about the beatles and the stones and it was all about the success and the glamour and the, the drugs and the sex and the this and the that and the kind of lifestyle of the rich and famous. This wasn't, this wasn't. This mm. was very down to earth, very earthy. Um, and I just thought, you know, she's actually Deborah Curtis has done the world a favor by bringing us back the real Ian Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today 
purpose. And, you know, for a book that's about somebody like that by his wife, you know, instantly, you know, as you say, it's kind of uh, stripped down so many layers. Reading it now, you know, for the first time in years, um, I also realised how very cruel he was to her. You know, she talks about Mm. how controlling he was of her life and her time and her friends early on. And later about how he, you know, she uses the phrase eliminating her presence in her, you know, she he eliminates her presence in his life. Obviously, he mm. then has um, a relationship with Anna Canore. Um, his life in the band is obviously increasingly away from Deborah mm. um, and their baby, Natalie, when she comes along. I thought that was interesting that those elements of, you know, what we call today, you know, toxic mm. masculinity. You know, it's um, interesting to see about the behaviour of people at that point um, and how you know, secretive and unpleasant it could be as well. Yeah, and uh, there's probably elements of that in many bands, the relationships. I mean, a band usually forms, it's usually four or five blokes, and they've usually known each other since school or soon after, and they're like a gang. They run Mm. together, they're a gang, they're a unit, and nothing else can intrude. Things that intrude tend to upset the equilibrium, and that includes personal relationships, family homes, family life, the rest of it, kids. Um, you've seen it time and again, you know, um, from when Yoko Ono was being blamed for breaking up the Beatles onwards, we've had this. And even before that, with rock and roll, early rock and roll. Um, and yeah, I think it's the nature of the beast, it's the nature of, of, of the music industry, is that when a band start getting a name for themselves and there's a vibe, there's a kind of, this word is going out, they've got to work hard, they've got to get on the road, they've got to be... Um, touring relentlessly, doing interviews, making albums, making singles, putting stuff out, um, and all of that is, is is done in a bubble that precludes outside influences like family and old friends and everything else. And if you're a certain kind of person at heart anyway, maybe you've got a kind of gene that makes you a sort of controlling sort of person, or you've grown up in a family that's made you a controlling sort of person, then that comes into play as well. And it, it can exacerbate elements of your personality that are perhaps, you know, uh, to be deplored or at least, you know, you, you the, the person themselves might wish they, they could change or, or, you know, could could um, tamp down, could dampen in some way. So all of that is in there. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of heart-rending book in a way mm. that she's being, she is being left behind. Her and her child are being left behind as he moves on, uh, yeah. as he becomes a different person. And as the band take over his life. But the other characters in it are rendered in a way that's so detailed, you know, in, in the ordinary detail. Again, you know, people like Tony Wilson, you know, the, um, mm. you know, the things that are, you know, compromising about his personality. Rob Gretton emerges, mm. you know, fantastically. Um, we get Paul Morley, um, you know, and Richard Boone, all these people who have been around that sort of early world of independent music. Um I was wondering um, you know, what you thought about other writing about Joy Division, you know, what other books you've read. You know, have you read um, Bernard Sumner's memoir, Stephen Morris's books, Peter Hook's? Yeah, yeah I've, I've read most of the books. I've read most of the <laughs> versions. Um, uh, uh, Peter Hook's, uh, I, I liked a lot. Again, he came down as quite a down-to-earth sort of person who wasn't going to hold back in talking about people's um, problems and, and frailties, including himself. Um, and everybody's had their say in it, pretty much, haven't they? I mean, all the, the main players in the story have had their say, apart from the ones who are no longer with us, like Tony Wilson. 
but Tony gets well served by a huge biography that came out recently. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, and you think, is there anything else to be written um, apart from my existential thriller? Obviously, is of there course. anything else to be, <laughs> to be written about the band? Um, but, it, you know, it, it, what it shows you is it's a very complex, uh, you know, any band dynamic, and they were around for a very short time, yeah. very short time and made very few records. But, you know, that band dynamic is an incredibly complex thing and not everybody's memory will be 100% and not everybody was there 100% of the time. So you do get different perspectives. You do get different stories. Um, they're all fascinating. But it kind of makes me happy that my band, The Dancing Pigs, never did reach <laughs> for the stars, that we we collapsed in on ourselves very early on in the process. In fact, I think my memory is that we were playing a gig somewhere in Fife the night that it was announced that Ian Curtis had died. Right. I've got a vague memory of us kind of coming off stage if there was a stage. It might have been in a pub, so there might not have been a stage. <laughs> Um, and finding out the news. I don't know how that news would have travelled to us unless it was on the radio because, of course, back then you didn't have mobile phones and text alerts and the internet. So it would possibly have been... I mean, basically, we had Radio 1. Radio 1 was our, you know, John Peel show on Radio 1 was our, was our um, broadcaster of choice. So whether he mentioned it or not, I've got no idea. It does seem that this was the first book to, as you say, sort of pierce the myth, you know... Um... And there's such lovely writing as well about, you know, their relationship, you know, which was very difficult later. But, you know, there's a bit near the end of the book that um, I remember from when I first read it. Um, Ian's pale blue green eyes linger on in our daughter. And when those familiar long fingers twine themselves unwittingly into those inherited mannerisms, I remember how warm and loved I felt when he and I were 16. You know, these mm. moments of, you know, very ordinary but very profound love in the mix as well. Um you know, so this is 95, you know, Bernard Sumner's um, memoirs came out, you know, a long time after that, um, you know, in which there's some, that was a ghost written, I believe. There's amazing um, detail early on about his very hard childhood in poverty and extreme, you know, conditions in the North in, you know, the mid-century. Steve Morris's um, memoirs are very long and very funny, like he is himself, um, you know, and the way he talks about, what happens to Ian is very moving, actually, because you've got the combination of his personality and their lack of knowledge, really, about what was going mm. on with him. Um, you've done some writing around this as well. You wrote a foreword to the very limited edition 2007 book, uh, Juvines. Am I saying that right? Probably. Oh, yeah. Not. yeah, yeah, um, yeah you know, the, That's been reissued yeah, since, yeah. but featured the mm. famous photos that you've already mentioned of Joy Division by Kevin mm. Cummings. Um you know, what was it like to write about them um, yourself? Yeah, I, you know, um, quite a few years ago now, um, I was just starting to get noticed as a crime writer and I was in London and uh, it was arranged that I would do an interview with a newspaper and they got a photographer to come along and take some pics. The photographer was Kevin Cummins. And, and he sort of walked in the bar and I sort of knelt down in front of him, I think, basically, and, and you know, said, you know, your photographs are extraordinary. Your photographs are Joy Division. I just, yeah, I could look at them for hours and hours and hours. Um, so we got quite friendly and he came up to Edinburgh to do something and, uh, you know, and we met up for a drink. And uh, and then I was asked if I would write something for Juvenes, this book of Joy Division photographs. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he was a big part of it, wasn't he? I mean, every. Everybody around him was a big part of it. The kind of studio sound he got was extraordinary. When you hear early live recordings of Warsaw and Joy Division, you go, how did they become that other yeah. band? And a lot of it is studio trickery. 
um, and listening to advice or from managers and various other people as to how to get a different sound, how to get a slightly more otherworldly sound. And how Martin Hammett just created sounds, yeah. Yeah, and Kevin's photographs are part of that. They seem otherworldly. You know, he manages to capture them in a very bleak-looking Manchester with no passers-by, no pedestrians, just the band caught in snow. And they seem to be all wearing dark clothing. They seem to be all be kind of pale. None of them are smiling, of course. Um, and and you know it could it could be it could be a spy film from set in Eastern Europe. Hmm. They just they, they look like these very extraordinary figures, and that became part of the the myth making. Even the, the the jacket, the original, touching from a distance, it's one of Kevin Cummins' photographs in the front, and it's at the. I think when they were doing the original recording of the album, um, so it's in the or maybe rehearsals for the album, and it's just Ian standing there in front of a window, but it's it's kind of. You know, it's almost like a Caravaggio painting. There's a lot of darkness surrounding him. His kind of little highlights of his face and the window behind him is lit up, but there's a lot of darkness all around. And that was mm. what Kevin Cummins captured was that sense that in a Joy Division song, darkness is always present. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, I bought a Joy Division record without ever hear, having knowingly heard them before. Um, there was a shop in Clenetley, the nearest town to where I lived, a second-hand shop. I bought it for a pound. I bought Closer for a pound. I just saw the cover <laughs> and thought, oh, what's that? I bought that. I bought it the same day as I bought my first Kraftwerk single. Um, <laughs> and I took it home and went into the you know, front room in our you know, typical Welsh house, um, put it on, and I used to, you know, when my mum and dad would be out at night or take my brothers to Cubs or whatever it would be, I'd be there in that room. I'd either be watching pop videos or I'd be in that room with the lights off listening to listening to joy division but it was you know the access point for me yeah was the imagery so you're completely right it's everything around that um writing about joy division yourself you know you obviously you know all the books that you've read um about joy division you know i'm sure that's the starting point about your you've got books about music writing everywhere um (laughs) i'd love to hear your thoughts on writing about music you know why you love reading writing on music and if you could ever consider writing a book on music yourself what is it that Frank Zappa is supposed to have said? Sort of writing about music is like dancing, dancing about architecture. Yeah, that old yeah. chestnut, yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know if he ever said that or whether it was someone else or whether nobody ever said it. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it was one of these things from a very from when I was 11, 11 12 years old. I, you couldn't access the musicians other than through the music press. Mm. So hence I was buying sounds. The reason I bought sounds, by the way, over NME was that sounds had a free colour poster. So ah. I could festoon my bedroom walls with free posters of bands I had never heard of, like Wishbone Ash and Alice Cooper and uh, <laughs> Black Sabbath and Uriah Heep. Um, so I'd all these posters up on my on my bedroom walls, um, and so that became that became you know the, your gateway. And I, I was I remember getting uh, sounds, and there was a piece about Alice Cooper, and I thought Alice Cooper must be a woman because <laughs> Alice Cooper's name is Alice Cooper. Oh, um, and I was looking well. at the photograph, thinking she's a bit rough. <laughs> Uh, and then you know then then saw Alice Cooper on top of the pops and all became clear Uh, and then went and bought schools out Um, so yeah so so I've always been a fan of writing about music and some of the you know the writing about punk made you so I mean it always made me jealous that I was in Fife or I was in Edinburgh I wasn't where the scene was I've never ever ever been where the scene is happening Um, I moved to London in 1986 by which time the scene had moved on elsewhere 
I was never a student in Glasgow when you know yeah. stuff was happening with postcard records and and orange juice and all that. Um, I mean Edinburgh did have a scene. Edinburgh we had post punk, we had the Scars and Joseph K, um, we had the Rosillos and a few other bands, uh, but it never felt to me like there was a, 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 a coherent scene. In a way, there seemed to be around Factory. Factory seemed to create a scene in Manchester, and mm. Postcards seemed to create a scene in Glasgow. Um, so I was always reading about these things because I was never part of these things. Um, and and also, I, I liked, you know, I do like the kind of juicy stories, the juicy gossip. So the um, Motley Crue, what's the book called? Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Oh, The, um, the, the Dirt. The Dirt, Motley Crue. Never in my life have I heard a mo- knowingly heard a Motley Crue song or been <laughs> a fan of the band or owned any of the records, but I bought The Dirt and loved it to bits, you know, <laughs> just because it was so salacious. It was so ridiculous. It was so over-the-top perfect. I like all of that. I like it going from the touching from a distance to The Dirt. I'll read anything <laughs> in that in that kind of rainbow there. Um, Obviously, your existential thriller based on unknown pleasures aside, um, if you were asked to write it, you were told, you know, I know Surrey and Rankin, <laughs> you, people can't tell you to do anything <laughs> because you are a, a man who can do what he likes. But if, if somebody told you to write a book about music, what would you write it about? Um, I, you know, I'm kind of, I, I keep flying a flag for my friend Jackie Levin, who died a few years ago um, and whose music isn't nearly well enough known in the UK, although things are afoot. Uh, a couple of albums came out recently to try and... Mm redress the balance um and he lived an extraordinary life he lived at least three lives as far as i can make out and interesting to while everybody's still around and it's still fresh in their memories to maybe interview some of the people who knew him better than i did um to fill in some of the gaps and do a book about jackie Levin. that's the one that springs to mind fantastic but then i'd also um, like to hang out with bob robert smith so maybe i could write a book about robert smith god bless him it would be funny to hang out with robert smith have you met them? No. Can I tell you my yeah, Robert Smith story very quickly? Can I tell you my Robert Smith story? I was oh, living in France, yeah. not making. I was living in France, not making much money. I got an idea for a book called The Hanging Garden. I thought, oh, that's a song by The Cure. Um, I thought I'll tell you what. I'll add some of the lyrics in. Each chapter will begin with a line from the song The Hanging Garden by The Cure. I thought, hang on a minute, Ian. You better get permission for this. Um, I had no idea how to go about it. So I was living in rural France, pre-internet pre-mobile phones. So what I did was one of my Cure CDs had a fan club address. So I wrote to the fan club. And months later, I got a phone call from the manager of the Cure uh, saying, look, I've spoken to Bob about this, Robert Smith, um, and he's fine about it. But of course, there will be a fee. And I thought, God, I'm skint. I've got no money. How much is the fee? She said, Bob wants a signed copy of the book to him when it's published. And I went, no problem. Put the phone down, thought, (laughs) I've got no, how do I get in touch? I didn't take her details. I don't know her phone number. I couldn't do 1471. I was living in France. Um, she hadn't left me any details. How does he get the signed book? So the book was published. He never got his signed copy. Years later, my publisher asked me to do a new, new introduction to the paperback, which I did, and I mentioned this in it. Someone showed it to Robert Smith, who got in touch via my publisher, and said, right, oh, where's my book? So he finally <laughs> got his signed first edition, which was the final copy I had of it on my shelf. So for a long time, I did not have a, I did not have a first edition copy of my own book because I'd given the last copy to Robert Smith. I had to get one from a book dealer in London, but he did. Oh get my copy. goodness! Oh, fantastic. that's lovely, though, isn't it? How much do? How much was it going to cost me? A signed copy. I love that. Course. There is a fantastic story online somewhere about um, 
the Cure song Charlotte Sometimes, which is a self-named after a fantastic, um, very strange children's novel by Penelope Farmer, which I would recommend to anybody reading. It's a wonderful, properly spooky book set in the 1910s. Um, but um, they got in touch and they ended up meeting when she was, um, she's still with us, I think. But um, mm. have a look online if you're interested in The Cure and Charlotte Sometimes. There's a great story um, there. Um just to go back finally to the book, you know, how would you sum it up for somebody who <clears throat> maybe be a little bit nervous of approaching it? Because obviously it's a it's a tough read in many respects. It's a tough read. I mean, it's not really about joy division. Um, it's about a relationship. It's about it's about a, a, a friendship, a love affair, a relationship, boy and girl who've been dating from high school and then a band and the music industry kind of get in the way and, and tear them apart. Um, but it's it's a really good primer if you if you've ever been interested in Ian Curtis and Joy Division, it does demythologize a lot of the stuff that's that's still around to do with the band. Um, it takes you away from the mythology and the and the jacket designs and everything else, and sort of gives you real people back again. So it's quite a warm, um, humane book, and you will get to read the Joy Division lyrics, and you wouldn't get that otherwise. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to mention earlier on as well, John Savage's recent oral history of the band from a few years ago. Um, mm. This Searing Light, The Sun and Everything Else is a fantastic book as well. Um, thank you, Ian. So that was Touching from a Distance by Deborah Curtis, published by Faber. Now, obviously, given the subject of the book, if you have found any of our discussions around the subject difficult or are finding life difficult, remember that the Samaritans are available day or night, 365 days a year. And that you can call them for free on 116123, email them at joe, J-O, at samaritans.org or visit www.samaritans.org to find your nearest branch. Now, to finish the podcast, um, a few recommendations from you would be great, Ian. Um, you've already mentioned The Dirt. <laughs> are mm-hmm. there any other songbooks that you want to mention today that you really think are worth us buying and reading? Um, well, Peter Hook, I think, is a really fine writer, very funny. Um, him on Joy Division, him on Factory, him on New Order, uh, you know, you can't miss. Cozy Fanny Tootie's book, Art, Sex, Music, is quite a difficult book to read because a lot of it's about her relationship with uh, Genesis Peorage. Um, but it's a very, very well-written book and fascinating. Um, uh, Long Players, edited by Tom Gatti. No, I'm actually in that book. Uh, oh, Tom yeah. Gatti did these features for the... Uh, New Statesman, where he would ask people for their favourite album and to write a short essay on their favourite album. And it's just full of really fascinating albums. And it'll make you go back into your record collection or it'll make you listen to stuff that you've not listened to in years. And Themes for Great Cities by Graham Thompson, because it's about the early days, mostly, of Simple Minds. And I think Early Simple Minds um, came out of that same thing we've just been talking about. That's yeah. sort of post-punk. Very, They were challenging. They were trying something different. They were very European. They had this great imagery going on. So, um, yeah, and, and that's a really good book. So there's something to start with. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, Graham Thompson's excellent. His book on Kate Bush I was uh, looking mm-hmm. at again recently, Under the Ivy, which is which is brilliant. Um, and finally, um, obviously music is at the heart of this podcast. Um, we'd like you to remember what I'm loosely calling a book song for us, um, a song that you love inspired by a work of literature. Um, and all these will be added to the Spotify playlist um, that I'll share Um will be shared after each show. Well, I mean, I thought I could be really lazy and say Atrocity Exhibition by Joy Division, which is named <laughs> well, after yes. a, a linked collection of the J.G. Ballard stories. But if nobody else has had it yet, I would probably go for Sympathy for the Devil, 
um, Rolling Stones, um, loosely based on The Master and Margarita by Bulgakov, Russian novel that someone had pressed in Mick Jagger's hand about a, a charming Marianne stranger Faithful. who turns out to be, yeah, turns out to be the devil, basically. Um, so please allow me to introduce myself. I think it's almost taken verbatim from the book. Uh, and it's a, it's a great song. It's a great song. Um, and it got me to read the book. I wouldn't have read the book if I hadn't known the song. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ian, um, for talking about Touching from a Distance with us. It's been a great pleasure. What are you off to do for the rest of your day? More proofreading? More, more, yeah, I'm going to have, go and have lunch with my wife and then more proofreading. Uh, it's a hot, really hot sunny day. It's a shame to waste it indoors. But hey-ho, work comes first, as you <laughs> well know, Jude. At least you could open the windows now. I can open the windows now. <laughs> so we can't have passing traffic. Yeah, thank you so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Um, thanks to everyone for listening as well. Uh, we hope this inspires you to get reading. Lots of suggestions this week. There'll be a new episode of Songbook for you next week to keep all that going. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to Songbook. You can find links to the books mentioned in this episode, as well as our Spotify playlist, in the episode description. Songbook is presented by me, Jude Rogers. It's produced by me and Alice Lloyd. It's edited and mixed by Dan Jones and our music is by the one and only David Holmes. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.